Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Today's topic is how melatonin and light therapy can naturally improve your sleep, your mood, and your energy. I don't know about you, but I'm not the biggest fan of winter. More than just the cold weather, and you know, we had a lot of snowfall this winter, which was kind of beautiful for about a day. It's the winter's darkness that bothers me, those short days with fewer hours of sunlight, really seem to affect my energy and mood. I used to say to myself, oh, maybe I should live in a warmer climate like Florida or California, but I love New York too much. I was born and raised here, and so that never happened. I've been here 30 years practicing in Manhattan. My guest today is Dr. Michael Terman, who has been studying the connection between our inner biological clock and depression, sleep, and energy for over four decades. He is a professor of psychiatry at Columbia University, and he's the co-author with Ian McMahon of Reset Your Inner Clock, a drug-free way to, to your best ever sleep, mood, and energy. The great news is that he has really pioneered a lot of therapies ranging from light therapy to melatonin to bring relief to many sufferers of seasonal affective disorder, depression, and other mental illnesses. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Michael Terman to the podcast. I'm delighted to be back here with you. Dr. Terman, I, I like to ask a lot of my guests this question, why they went into a particular field. As I mentioned, Dr. Norman Rosenthal, who's the author of the book, Winter Blues, was a psychiatrist that originally came from South Africa. And when he did his residency training here in New York, I think Albert Einstein, first year being here, he was noticing- Columbia. Oh, it was Columbia? He was very, he started to notice his energy, his mood, and it led him into this whole field of light therapy, as you well know. So just want to know if you had any similar stories or was it uh, something else that led you into this field? Well, my story does hook up to Norman Rosenthal's. Oh, that's interesting. I was doing a basic research in animal physiology at the time that the biology of the circadian rhythm system had been discovered. And the key variable there was light on and light off relative to an animal's oscillation up and down every day. And one day I heard that the National Institute of Mental Health had admitted a patient who came with his own hypothesis that turning the light on would turn his winter blues into his summer state. And it's wonderful because here's an illness that was actually identified by a patient. He was a scientist and he had kept records of his seasonal mood shifts for about 30 years. Well, they turned the lights on and he got better in a few days. And I heard this very quickly through, the, through Scuttlebutt in my lab, and it changed my life. I moved from Boston to Columbia to the Psychiatric Institute. I had not been in psychiatry until then and began the first large clinical trials in this area. That's very interesting. You know, I do remember reading your book. I think he was an engineer. But I always say, leave it to a patient that's suffering with a problem to want to solve the problem. And if doctors only would listen, we would really advance medicine at a much faster pace. So that was a good way to start. I'm going to move into sleep now because that is a big issue. You know, I'm a clinician in New York. I deal a lot with immunological conditions and chronic fatigue. And sleep is an issue that we just have to really address that gets overlooked a lot because it affects not only their mood, but their energy. You know, we know that a third of the population has a sleep problem, insomnia, but it's a complicated problem. Some people have trouble falling asleep, and that can be due to anxiety or depression. Others have trouble staying asleep, 
which can be due to medications or chronic pain. I see a lot of patients that have fibromyalgia or chronic pain syndrome, and they just can't get comfortable. So my question to you is, you say in your book, a sleep problem is mainly a circadian rhythm problem. Why do you think it's the inner clock that's off more than just, again, stress or medications, which a lot of people, young people are taking Adderall or Vyvanse. Why do you feel it's the circadian rhythm? Well, you have to factor out the confounders like medication effects or other specific interfering illness. But uh, the circadian system is what organizes our sleep cycle every day. And when one or another aspect of the circadian rhythm is off, sleep is affected. And that's true for everybody. So one example is that your circadian rhythm has gone very late relative to your workday schedule. And uh, this can happen for both behavioral reasons or genetic reasons. So you may have to get to sleep by 11 o'clock to get up at 6.30 or 7, and there's no choice there, so you do it. You're wiped out, but your circadian rhythm is late. It does not want to put you to sleep until 1 or 2 o'clock. And the adjustment to get those two into synchrony with each other is what chronotherapy is all about. We can, by structuring your exposure to the day modifications of your daily light-dark cycle, we can get those two into sync and the problem disappears. So that's one example of a problem. Another example is very low amplitude circadian rhythms. In other words, the contrast in your physiology between the middle of the day and the middle of the night is attenuated, is not that great. Something in your brain isn't driving a strong cycle. Mm. And there we find that light supplementation, even in the middle of the day, can enhance that amplitude and all of a sudden your sleep is deeper and more oh, consistent. That's important. You know, we're going to get into that because again, you know, the whole thing between winter and summer, you know, just to mention this now, but there's a lot of things I want to really go into. In the summer, you're outdoors more. I just find I'm, you know, I sleep better in the summer months because I, you know, I'm more physically active. I'm out. I'm tired by the end of the day. I mean, it's such a great feeling to just feel your muscles, your mind feeling so tired that you're ready to go to sleep versus the winter when you know, it's freezing cold out today. And if you're inside a lot, you just, you're not that tired physically. Well, two things are happening here. One is you're getting more light during the day, which is increasing the amplitude of your rhythm. The other is that the sun is coming up significantly earlier. And that, that is hitting your rhythm at a point where it shifts your sleep into synchrony with your work day. So Mm. both things can happen at once. Therapeutically, we target one or the other to Mm. get them into That's a really important point. I want to to get something really interesting in a second too, but you know, it's one of the things I tell my chronic fatigue patients, by the way, because you know, some of them, their sleep is so off and then sometimes they'll sleep till one or two o'clock in the afternoon. And I'll tell them, I think that getting the morning light is so important in essentially resetting their inner clock so that they do have more energy and focus. Because if you're waking up so late in the afternoon, as you mentioned in your books and a lot of the research is showing, it's just that inner clock wants that morning light to set the day. But I want to ask you about, I know anybody listening will find this fascinating, the description of the different sleep types, the quote, owls, the larks, and the hummingbirds. Would you tell us a little bit about the three different types and and maybe also any interesting hallmarks of each one. I mean, because again, of course, the owl likes, like me, likes to stay up kind of late. I'm not a super owl, but uh, as you mentioned, it's a combination of things. You know, the larks are the people I, you know, I can't believe they get up at five in the morning and they're, they're ready to go. And the hummingbirds are the in-between. So you know, tell, me, tell us a little bit what you found in evaluating these patients. 
Yeah, owls, larks. That's a, a poetic way of referring yes, to nice. the, <laughs> of referring to something more continuous in our physiology of where our circadian cycle is positioned. Right, and it can be very early relative to sleep, and it can be late relative to sleep. So there, you're going from larkdom to owldom. This correlates with when your pineal gland is secreting its nightly episode of melatonin. So the larks are getting tired earlier in the evening. Their melatonin is turning on from the pineal gland and sticking into the bloodstream two hours before they get sleepy. So let's say you're prone to go to sleep at 9.30 p.m., 7.30 p.m., your melatonin is already rising. Now, if you do a melatonin measurement in an owl who's going to sleep at 2 in the morning, you won't see the melatonin rise in the bloodstream until about midnight. So these are two These are very- real things. This is not make-believe. This is real, real physiology going on. This is basic physiology. It's not taking tablets to interfere with the physiology. Yeah. These patterns are genetically determined. Okay. And they can change somewhat at different change at different stages of life. The most marked one is around puberty when these teenagers are suddenly going to sleep later and later and right. later. Right. And parents accuse them of behavior mismanagement (laughs) and protest. But even so, they've got to get up at 6.30 and they are wiped out during the day. Yeah, They physiologically cannot fall asleep. This is correctable by using timed light therapy to shift their inner clock earlier. The clock goes later and later as we go through our teenage years until the early 20s. And now I'm speaking in averages. It's really not till you're about 40 years old till you've normalized again spontaneously. Wow. So we, most of us have this tendency to become owlish after puberty. And by the time we're entering middle age, our sleep-wake cycle is normative. You know, what I find so fascinating about this, a couple of things, it's, it's almost like people really should know this in, in a job decision-making. I'll, I'll just share something kind of funny. Like when I was going through my fourth year of medical school and I was doing different rotations, and when I had to do the obstetrics rotation, I found it interesting, but they had to be up at five in the morning doing these rounds. And I'm like, this is not for me. I'm too, I'm just too wiped out, you know. When I was doing uh, internal medicine or something, being up late in the in the evening, you know, having to take care of patients, you know, on the wards, I was like, I can do this. It's not a problem. And I think the thing is, remember, like the old Benjamin Franklin quote: "Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise." But do our society look down on people that are owls as lazy or unproductive compared to the larks who seem to be getting up early and they're the first one in the office, you know? <laughs> It depends what subculture of owl you're in. Well, if you're in medicine or you're in financial industry, (laughs) very competitive areas. But if you're in the arts or you're a professional writer, you're often writing light into the night. Yeah, right. That's right. I'm a writer type. So, yeah, I I think I definitely fit into the, I'll have to be evaluated, but I think I'm definitely that owl who has to adjust. (laughs) I think my point is that you have to learn where you are on the scale of early to late. And for that, we have convenient online software that, I think patients should know about that. Yeah, that's great. And this is through the nonprofit that I'm associated with, the Center for Environmental Therapeutics, CET.org. There you can answer a series of questions about when you prefer to do things during the day, when you are sharpest and not so sharp, when you prefer to eat. And from that, we can correlate it with your melatonin cycle. We can map 
the answers to these questions onto your melatonin cycle. From that, we know whether you are physiologically an early bird or an owl. And from that, we can schedule light therapy to adjust your circadian rhythm accordingly. Mm -hmm. So an owl is going to begin to use light therapy slightly before the time of wake up, and that's going to shift the clock earlier. And you follow him as the clock shifts earlier, the light shifts earlier. If you are an extreme lark and you're, and you're falling asleep at 8.30 in the evening, it's the opposite. You start taking light in the evening and pushing the clock later and later to synchronize with your daytime schedule. Is it dangerous to force an owl into a lark's schedule? Two things. Will not just make them unproductive? Could it actually exacerbate mental or physical illness? Have you seen that? Has that? You don't create the opposite personality. You don't force a lark to be an owl. No, I'm owl. saying, let's say their job. Let's say, you know, let's say a guy's a, a subway, what do you call it? Like engineer, you know, he has to, he, he's an owl, but he's got to be there at seven in the morning. You're making sure that the trains don't go off the tracks. Is that potentially, you know, and this is day after day. He's not. Shift work is very dangerous. It and is, there's right? no, yeah. And there's, there's no simple solution for that. Mm -hmm. And shift workers who are changing every week or two from a day shift to a night shift, it's really devastating for the physiology. There's no real solution for that except to uh, find a slot where your circadian rhythm is matched. Mm. So uh, enlightened employers now will identify their larks and let them come in at seven in the morning. Right. Whereas the owls are coming in at 11 and working into the evening. That's like the tech workers. They're very into that. You know, Google, they let them take naps in the afternoon. You know, everybody wants to work for them. <laughs> but, you know, in the hospital, they don't want to know about that. When I used to do, when I used to work in the emergency room during my residency, I had to be there 7 a.m. in the morning and I left at 7 at night. And then sometimes on my shifts, it would switch. I had to work the 7 p.m. to the 7 a.m. And they really weren't that interested in whether I was an owl or a lark. There was like, get your butt there and, and take care of patients. So well, the, medical, the medical establishment hasn't recognized these circadian rhythm factors. Really? Circadian science, circadian physiology, and chronotherapeutics are still not part of the medical school curriculum. Yeah, that's true. Doctors aren't trained here. Yeah, that's true. And the effects are powerful, and they actually they transcend all illnesses. It's interesting you say that because the first time I ever heard about chronotherapy, and I was lucky because I trained through the Columbia system, I was at St. Luke's Roosevelt, that one of the doctors, I forgot where, he was actually an oncologist, came to talk to us about chronotherapy, and he talked about how when they give chemotherapy, I forgot which drugs, they specifically do it at night because they found it killed the cancer cells and it was safer for the person's body. And that to me was my aha moment. Like that makes sense. But I want to go back to something really important, which worries me once this whole COVID thing's under better control. What about all the children going to school? As you mentioned there, they're sort of becoming owls, but they have to be up at seven in the morning, be on the bus, whatever. Are we, by not recognizing this issue in them, causing you know some kind of harm? Yes, and it depends on where you live. Right, right. If we compare ourselves on the East Coast to another time far west in our time zone, say in Indiana, the sun is rising much later there. You add on the switch from daylight savings time to standard time in winter, there's another hour there. These kids are forced to rise with three hours of darkness facing them, and they're forced to trek out to the school buses in darkness. It has caused accidents. Really? School performance is devastated. So there, there's a lot of uh, stupid legislation out there that uh, interferes with our... Uh, yeah, we need you to consult with the Biden administration. I'm going to get back to the, I'm gonna get back to the daylight savings because I do have a lot of personal concerns, but I, I want to stay on the sleep for a little bit too. So let me ask you too, it's a huge industry now, obviously, with the uh, sleeping. You know, there's the, the sleep mattresses 
is there's somebody that I like who does another podcast, talks about how he, he likes to sleep on this cool mattress. It's almost like an ice cube. Are these things as important as the whole melatonin light issue? Uh, are they just good marketing and uh, good business? Or, you know, this whole thing with body temperature and melatonin, you know, what, what's the relationship with all that stuff? Okay, there's a lot of hype in that industry. Yeah. But there is a connection between the circadian cycling and optimum sleep. When melatonin starts to rise in the evening, whether it's at 7 p.m. for you or 9 p.m. for another person, our core body temperature starts to fall. Melatonin is eliciting a circadian change in core body temperature. At the same time, our skin is heating up. And so we start losing heat from our feet, for example, and our hands. Oh, yeah, my feet are always cold at night. (laughs) Okay. And that process of core body temperature lowering and losing body heat through the skin helps us get to sleep. And a wonderful example in the lab was to wear warm socks or not wear warm socks in order to facilitate the dilation of the blood vessels in the foot and the the rapidity of the loss of heat as you go to sleep. Is that good to do, to wear the the socks? Or is it bad? It's good to do, especially if you have problem going to sleep because you're going to facilitate the loss of body heat in the core, which is essential for optimum sleep. Yeah. I, I was just getting doing this naturally. I was like, I just, I don't know what it was weird. It was like, maybe I keep it very cool in, a, in our bedroom. We actually keep the window open, my wife and I, but my feet get cold. And so I know, I don't know, you just start to do all these little things to try to figure out how can I get a good ball into a good sleep? There's nothing better than a good sleep. <laughs> After that finding about warm feet, and Warm Socks was published in The Lancet. Really? Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, you wouldn't think they would be publishing about that. What about the disruption of these blue light devices? I mean, so many young people today with their laptops and their phones, and they, they have it in their bed. And, you know, I, I used to yell at my kids, I don't want to see that cell phone right by your head till the last minute till they go to sleep. They're looking at their Facebook. Is it significant? Is it a big, big problem? Oh, it's very significant. And here we have to start teasing apart the physics of light, the components of light. When we're looking at a white light, we see a combination of the entire spectrum, all the way from the red into the green into the yellow and orange. And blue at the short end of the spectrum has a specific activating effect on retinal cells in your eye, Mm. which push the circadian rhythm either earlier or later, depending on you see it. So if you're looking at a white screen, even a small cell phone screen in the evening, there's a big blue component in white. Mm. And that is signaling your circadian clock to move later. So it becomes harder to fall asleep. Now, if you subtract the blue light out of that, what do you have? You have the color which we could describe as amber. If you wear eyeglasses that have an amber tint on them, it won't allow the blue to enter the eye. Mm. And this deleterious effect of blue light goes away. So the glasses that they talk about are really good. I mean, you know, more and more, obviously, people should be wearing those blue light glasses. Are they effective? I mean, do they really do the job? Most of the drugstore blue blockers don't take out all the blue. Okay. And again, if you look at the Center for Environmental Therapeutics website, we'll describe exactly what blue needs to be removed and what lens is optimum for that. Do you give, do you give recommendations of what kind of brands or something, you know, cause yeah, people yes. want direction on that. Oh, that's great. That's yes. good to know. For and against. <laughs> okay. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Let me ask you also about 
Well, I guess it involves sleep pressure and sleep debt, but you know, naps and siestas. You know, in Europe for a long time, they love their siesta. You know, us in the United States look like, oh gosh, they're just lazy Europeans. I happen to be a big fan of like weekend naps. <laughs> I really feel good after them. What's what's your feeling? And even in the high, you know, the, the tech companies now are have like a, you know on their big campuses, you know, little pods that their employees could go in and take a little nap. Is it good, bad? Does it, you know, I don't find that it messes me up. I still sleep good at night, but is it a good thing? Okay. A healthy nap is not a very long one. Mm -hmm. You get maximum benefit from a daytime nap if it's 20 minutes long. Yeah. It's kind of short to me. (laughs) It sounds short to you. The second factor is when you're taking that nap. A nap before midday Yes, it can be safe and healthy and energizing. Before midday? Before 12 o'clock? No, the middle of your real day. Yeah, right. O'clock. That's what I meant, like 3 o'clock. When everybody has that postprandial, like, oh, I think I'm going to fade out yeah. here a little bit. That's okay. A 20-minute nap can be energizing and alerting and not interfere with sleep. Mm. If you take that nap at 5 or 6 or 7 in the evening, oh, that's late. Yeah. it is depleting sleep pressure. And that is a formula for insomnia. Oh, okay. So late napping in the second half of the day has to be avoided. And and if if you need that nap, before o'clock makes sense. Let me ask you, so if somebody's fighting that, let's say like six o'clock, they're like, whoa, um, you know, and we'll get to jet lag and hopefully some other things too. But if they're fight, would you recommend they, they drink a cup of caffeine or a cup of chocolate or something that's got a little stimulant in it or... I don't know. I mean, what would you what would you tell them? Go for a walk? I mean, what would you tell them to try to do to to, to fight off that? Uh, I'd need to know more about the case. Is okay. this a person who is a crapping out at 6 o'clock but then becomes very energetic at 10 p.m.? And can't fall asleep. Oh, no, I'll give you. I'll give you a better example. Uh, let's say I, I, you know, I sleep pretty good. But let's just say I don't know. I had some kind of emergency. A patient woke me up. You know, something happened in the three in the middle of the night. You know, three or four in the morning. I still had to go to work the next day. There were you know patients to be seen, whatever. Too, but by six o'clock the next day, it's like that twenty-four hour cycle. I'm hitting the wall. What you're saying is essentially, if I take that nap at six o'clock, that's gonna be, I'm gonna still be keep on messing up my cycle. I have to try to fight through it a little bit because well, we're, we're gonna get to jet lag in a few minutes, but. Uh, yeah, the transient solution uh, would probably be to fight it and not to give in to the nap, and then your system is going to jump back the following night. Yeah. Fortunately, I've been getting up now just naturally, and I, I guess I, I'm lucky. You know, at the stage of my career, I can make my hours that seem to fit my chronotrope. But are alarm clocks bad for us? I mean, when you, it's, I used to hate it when I when I was getting up earlier and working earlier, and that that jarring sound. Is there a better way? I know you sometimes mention about these sleep simulators. What's the the best way to wake up in the morning? Alarm clocks are no good uh, because they are uh, cutting into your physiological sleep cycle at an arbitrary time when you are not ready to wake up. Right. We sort of want to wake up. We're built to wake up at the end of the last dream episode of the night, the last episode of... Mm -hmm. rapid eye movement. And if we interject with an alarm at other points, it's highly disruptive. Now, light therapy that we've developed to address this problem simulates the slowly rising sun, the dawn stimulus. And that is very potent in speaking to the circadian clock and synchronizing it. So the idea there is that you program a slowly rising dawn in your bedroom and your clock adjusts to it and you're waking up at simulated sunrise without the uh, intervention of an acoustic stimulus. So it's, it's, it's sort of like a very gentle way to wake you up. I mean, it's like it's the most natural way to make wake you up. Is that is that what it is? It's like you're sleeping in a tent on the beach. But it's, it's such a pleasant, <laughs> right? But it's such a pleasant way to, to get up. I guess then, then the rest of it, you know, goes well. All right. The last part of the sleep I want to ask you about, because it this is the fascinating, you know, obviously everybody's kind of been grounded for the most part with COVID <laughs> the pandemic. But, you know, the whole thing with jet lag, 
what I want to mention about this so people really appreciate this, because I know when I used to travel, and I didn't travel a lot, but if I went to Europe or Israel or places I like to go to Greece, I remember it was just like the first few days, you know, sometimes the first week of the trip were just awful because I was fighting how to stay awake. And I think people have to really appreciate how significant this stuff is. Because, you know, I was reading uh, a year or two ago, I think it was in Sports Illustrated, one of my favorite magazines in the past, you know, how the athletes now, you know, the, the sports teams take this super seriously. And the reason being is they saw that something, I believe teams that were traveling from the East Coast to the West Coast were losing a lot more ball games than vice versa. And, you know, so when big money's on the line, a lot of research gets put into it. So maybe explain for the listeners a little bit. I know you talk about this in your book, some of the best ways to handle jet lag. So you don't really, if you're off for two weeks, you get to go on that special vacation after COVID to Europe, how you don't, you know, you're not miserable that first week when you only have two weeks, if you're lucky to go. The way you handle it really depends on the direction of your travel and how far. If you're only going to move one or two time zones, you just suffer through with it. But if you're when you say one or two time zones, tell me. So going from New York to Europe, is that that's how many zones? Uh, six. Oh, so that's it. Yeah. So it's not like going from New York to Boston. Yeah, right. For that, you have to prepare yeah. for the trip. In other words, you're sitting in New York. You're going to Rome. Right. You have to begin to shift your day-night cycle artificially toward Rome before you get on the plane. And that means getting yourself to wake up gradually earlier and earlier in the week before you leave. You gotta be disciplined. You really have to be disciplined if you want to enjoy. And when you wake up, you do the light therapy. So your clock is adjusting. And by the time you get to Rome, you're more or less in sync. Okay, if you don't do that, I'll just say, because a lot of times people get lazy. I know I think I've read stuff, but you know, if you don't do that, is it still good? I know, I know what I used to do a lot of times. I would keep my watch. I would keep the local, you know, my original place where I left from on. And I'd say, gosh, if it's three in the morning, I should be sleeping now, even though if it's light outside, because my body wants that. Is that a good way sometimes too, if you're not as disciplined and prepared or you just, you're screwed <laughs> if you do it that way? <laughs> You can take precautions because... I can't sleep on a plane. See, that's a problem too. That doesn't work. <laughs> the lighting schedule that you're going into is different from the lighting schedule that you came from. And what you want to do, and let's go back to those blue blocking glasses. Yeah. You want to avoid being outdoors in Rome when it would interfere with your clock moving to Rome time. Okay. And there are schedules that simply say, if you're going to be out at this hour after you've taken the trip, wear these glasses and you will adjust far more quickly to local time. Oh, interesting. So uh, that's a physiological yeah. method, a natural method for making the adjustment, forcing yourself to sleep. Or well, that point, sometimes you just want, like you want to. If you're if your body's saying it's three in the morning and you're trying to do a tour through Rome and you're like you know dragon, it's not good. <laughs> your wife will kill you. <laughs> if you're smart about these things, you, you can prepare. prepare for yeah. it. Yeah, I know. No, I know. I I'm listening to you. I you know one other thing I want to ask you a question because this is right around the corner because I want to be prepared this time is daylight savings time. That also seems to kill me. It's crazy, but. The whole thing, the spring ahead, the fall behind. I notice it takes me, I think, a few weeks, sometimes a month for my schedule to feel right. I know my meals are off. I always forget to change the clock in my car. And I'm noticing, like, my cell phone will say, you know, it's 2 o'clock. And my car says it's 3 o'clock. And I know my stomach's saying, you don't want to eat now. You know, that, those kind of things. It, it's, not just the, it's not just the subjective issues that you're talking about. In fact, uh, the, the frequency of heart attacks goes up. Yes, right. In the yeah. week after that switch, yeah, uh, as well as the propensity to other illness. The circadian rhythm has been caught off guard mm. in an arbitrary way yeah. by legislating the light dark cycle according to uh, daylight savings time. Our clocks, our inner clocks, drift later. And when you suddenly schedule the transition to daylight savings time, they're forced to shift earlier. 
-hmm. It goes against our physiology. We can prepare, again, we can prepare for that by using light therapy for the week before the shift. Well, when is it starting now? Is it starting next week? Like when are we, do you know when? It's close, but we would have to check our. All right, I, I got to get started on this. I have my light box somewhere in the garage. I got to take it out. <laughs> you know. So you do it in the morning. You start where you are waking up a week ahead and you move the light 10 minutes earlier every day. And by the time you get to the Sunday morning of the shift, you will have moved your circadian rhythm into sync. But it doesn't have to do with how you wake up, though, because you can't put the light box on until you're yeah, awake. You are going to start waking up 10 minutes earlier a day and turning on the lights. So you have to set an alarm. Yes, that's Or somewhat... you do the simulator. Is that what you, re- you would recommend that? You know, I saw you have that device. The simulator will help you do that automatically. But even if you have to be reminded with a jab in the ribs from your wife mm. or... No, she's still sleeping too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll have to get her up. <laughs> or an alarm. By waking up earlier and taking lights 10 minutes earlier today and 20 minutes earlier tomorrow and 30 minutes earlier by the time you get to the time shift you will already be in synchrony with daylight savings time let me ask you because i have to you know this is what i use my podcast for my personal use if i if i normally get up let's say at eight o'clock in the morning yeah so you're saying that i should start i should get up 750 whatever like a week before and then get up 740 Yes, but you have to do that and and use bright light therapy. Oh, until you you would. And what, like about 20 minutes? 20 minutes probably is enough to get these small shifts earlier. Okay. But it's the light at that hour that is doing the correction to your clock. Is it still dark outside? Or it's probably light here now by that. No, can you go out? Can I just go for a walk outside? I mean, that's obviously more pleasant. If the sun is fully up, a walk outside will do the same thing as light therapy. And for how long? Goes for like 20 minutes, the same amount of time or? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what happens if you miss that that week before the actual change? Can you still try to readjust it? I'm just curious. Like if you, let's say we, we do the daylight savings next Sunday, you know, you're just busy, you don't do it. But like you're starting to feel kind of crummy. Can you start to do it or you miss that that window period of adjusting? No, of course you can. And eventually everyone adjusts. Right. Uh, it could be three or four weeks. Yeah. You can always expedite it by using bright light therapy when you wake up. Sure. That's okay. the powerful stimulus that, to shift your clock earlier. Okay. That's that's great advice. The last thing on this sleep I'm going to ask, because then I want to get something a little more serious. We have time on the mental illness and depression issue. But I want to ask you about melatonin because you've written about this. And I have a lot of patients that have used melatonin for sleep. And I, I have to tell you, I find most of them are probably either not doing it right. Maybe the product's not good. They don't even know if it works. And I know you've written about in your books about this micro dosing, actually a low dose. Because, you know, just so, so we, we're clear about this, you know, melatonin is a hormone. It's not a medication. It's a hormone. So dosing, like the same way if I gave thyroid medicine or I gave adrenal hormones, you take it seriously but it seems like it's got a, a huge benefit from your work. So tell for the listeners what you would recommend they do. And if there's any also product they can get, because I know it's very hard. I know, I think I tried to contact your center uh, several years ago and if I spoke to you, one of your researchers is like, oh, we think this product's going to be coming out, the microdosing melatonin. So I'd love to hear your ideas on this. Melatonin is misused and it's misdosed. Yeah. First of all, think about your natural melatonin, which is coming from your pineal gland automatically, according to a circadian rhythm. I said before, it may start to rise at 9 p.m. and you're ready to go to sleep at 11 p.m. Usually, people have the intuition that they should take a sleeping pill 30 minutes before bedtime, okay? Now think about this. The melatonin has already been rising for two hours, an hour and a half before bedtime. Once melatonin rises in the bloodstream, taking the pill has no effect whatsoever. Does it even suppress? Does it actually even suppress it? You know how these those feedback loops? No, just doesn't yeah, do anything. No. 
it, 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 it's just not going to be effective, except perhaps for unusual people who are not secreting melatonin. That's another, that's another story altogether. Right. And then here's a thought experiment. Taking a melatonin tablet at two in the afternoon will make it very easy for you to start snoozing. In other words, what time? it has the... What do you mean if you take it at two at, later at night or, or no, 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 you'll fall asleep. It'll, it, it'll quickly make you in the afternoon sleep. Yeah. It can wow. facilitate a longer sleep than you would ever want. Wow. So, so while melatonin has the ability to facilitate sleep onset, it's only in the middle of the day that it has that ability, not at night. Yeah. That's not good, <laughs> but here's our perspective solution. If you take a tiny bit of melatonin, and we're talking about yeah, what's a tiny bit? A dose range of about 0.1 milligram. Yeah, I don't see anybody on that. They're on like three, six, ten milligrams. No, those are all mega doses. Yeah. Okay. If you take a very low dose of melatonin before your pineal gland starts its nightly episode of secretion. It will talk to the circadian clock and say, move earlier, shift earlier. And because it is such a low dose, it doesn't put you to sleep. It's not a sleeping pill. You may want to go to sleep an hour early. You may be falling asleep at 1 a.m. and you want to fall asleep at 12. Right. And, and your melatonin starts to rise at 10 p.m. Okay. Count back another four hours, 6 p.m. If you start taking a very, very low dose melatonin at 6 p.m., you won't fall asleep, but your circadian clock will shift earlier and you will be able to reach your target that way. Is this a short acting or a long acting release, by the way? Because I thought you mentioned it was like long acting release. It should be long acting. In the original study, which was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, the patients took 0.1 milligrams every couple of hours. They timed it. Okay. This is a fast release, immediate release melatonin. So the melatonin would rise and then fall, and you catch it a couple of hours and get it up again and up again. And that was the way to keep the melatonin in the, uh, the bloodstream before the pineal gland started its daily cycle. And that moved the circadian rhythm earlier and therefore the sleep earlier. Now, what we have studied in the lab is uh, turning that into a slow, a gradual release formulation of low dose. Mm -hmm so that you wouldn't have to time it every two hours. Right. And we figured it out, and we've tested it in many subjects and patients. But you tell me why. I haven't had the interest of one a compounding pharmacy or drug company wow. in putting that on the market. And why, why is that? Why? It's because 0.1 or 0.2 milligrams, how are you going to sell... Your 10 milligram tablet. Why, it's more expensive? I mean, it's, is, it, is it expensive melatonin? I've never bought it. I don't know. That doesn't cost anything. Oh, wow. In other words, there's a, I, I think there's a mark issue here where the, the commercial community is not appreciating the physiological value of the very, very low doses. And people, too, will tend to say, a higher dose is going to do more for me. And that's not true for any drug in the world. How do you get the actual melatonin? Is it from an animal? Is it from a plant? You know, how, how do they actually compound? I'm just curious, like how you do that. These are all artificially formulated now. Really? Can somebody get that if they want to? If I have a patient that wants to get this slow release 0.1 milligram, as you're saying, is there a way to to get this? We are hoping. Do you have a patent that. on it or something or is it? The patent was so long ago that it's run out. Oh, wow. Okay, I, remember, I know. I've been following this for a while. You know, I've been on the, on the whole... And so you can't even... In Europe also, you cannot get this anywhere. We're waiting for an enlightened manufacturer to 
point to the advantage of the lower doses rather than higher doses. So even sports teams, nobody's come to you about this to say, hey, we want this for our players or athletes? A lot of inquiries. But the solution at the moment is what I said before, 0.1 milligrams every two hours. Well, how are you going to get, but how are they going to get this? How, where could you get this? You have to go to, go to a pharmacy and ask them to compound it, you know, specifically? Or a chop up. A oh, chop up. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of pharmacies do sell the milligram. Okay, so take like a one milligram and you got to chop it up, I guess, or dilute it down or something. Or get a Is there any liquid form. melatonin or no? Is there any like? Yes. Because you might be able to titrate that. Yes. All of this is possible, but not convenient. Because you have to keep on dosing, you know. We know it works. Well, that's really great. All right. The last area I want to move on to, which is probably the most serious part, it has to do with your light therapy, as we, you know, you've been alluding to. There are so many people in this country suffering from depression, and there's obviously even more just as bad or serious bipolar disease that you mentioned in your book that light therapy could have a place for. So maybe you could just explain to us a little bit about you know, what this type of therapy has to offer patients with depression. Obviously, there's a huge industry of pharmaceuticals, all the serotonin uptake inhibitors and Gosh, all you have to do is turn on TV and there's commercials for arthritis drugs and depression. Where do you see the, the place for light therapy? Is there only certain people it works well for? Is it, could it help every person with depression? This concept was fairly slow to develop because it seemed so obvious at the beginning in the early 1980s that since winters were dark and light therapy worked, light therapy was specifically matched to that type of depression. But there was always a suspicion that it would work in other cases. And now we know that it'll work for any depression. Interesting. And the strongest controlled clinical trial of patients with unipolar depression showed that light therapy gave a stronger response than the SSRI medication. Wow. When you combined the two together, it was even stronger. So these are compatible interventions. Do you think there's less depression in the like the South and the Southern West Coast? I mean, is that has that been studied just in general too? Is depression a less incidence than in the you know the northern latitudes here in the United States? I can't answer that. Yeah. Okay. I was just curious. Uh, no. Okay. I don't think that non-seasonal depression is going to vary that much. Okay. But seasonal depression, obviously, is going to get worse. And we've done the, the study that maps it out from the area of Florida up into the middle states, that is the area of Washington, D.C. It rises and rises and rises, but it doesn't get worse after that. The mm. farther north you go is as bad as you get. What's the ideal light box? I think you mentioned, because some of them can be like scams or, you know, if somebody wants to purchase a light box and try it, what should they be looking for? And what would you, I know you mentioned this in the book, so I'll let you explain, you know, how they should use it for the best effectiveness. Originally, the dosage of light that was used in the studies at the National Institute of Mental Health was 2000 lux, which is a bright light, but it's not that bright. What we did in, at Columbia is we raised the dose to 10,000 lux. Now, 2,000 lux required that people sit at the light box about two hours a day. Yeah, it's too long. <laughs> it was not a, it wasn't practical. Right. 10,000 10, lux required only 30 minutes a day on average after you wake up. Okay. But it's coming out of a large, bright screen in front of you. And in order for that to be tolerable, the light box has to be raised off the table and tilted downwards toward your eyes in sort of a simulation of sky cover. Oh, interesting. Otherwise, that level of light is too glaring. Yeah. And in this way, the level of light is comfortable. So that's the way the optimum light therapy is delivered. A large screen raised off the table and tilted down at your head. Now, the commercial community has picked up on this uh, 10,000 lux magic number and said, we 
can give you a like box the size of an iPhone produces 10,000 lux, and therefore that's going to do the trick. It will not do the trick okay. because you can, if uh, in order to receive that level of light from a bright, bright, bright iPhone, your eyes have to be right up in front of mm. it, intolerable, glaring, yeah, and impossible. Yeah, it's like being blinded. Yeah. And you use it at a distance of two, two or three feet, as they show in the photographs, you're not getting 10,000 lux. You're getting very little more than room light. What's the distance of the boxes in general? Is it 12 inches, 16 inches that the light should be from your eye, though, again? I know it usually says on the... Right. It's it's in that neighborhood. Yeah. And uh, the light box that we recommend actually comes with a little light sensor that you can place in front of the box and determine where is 10,000 lux and in your environment and that's where you sit is that on your website also the box that you recommend yes okay can you say that again it was at cet.org cet.org gosh we, we covered so many really interesting things i hope the listeners really appreciate it i know i learned so much uh, just like one last thing is there any um things you have to worry about with the light box or the melatonin, any adverse reactions that someone should not, for example, someone should not take melatonin. And is there anything somebody should watch out for if they have like glaucoma or some type of eye disease? Do we have to be worried that they take any kind of special precautions or not do it? Patients with active eye disease, especially where there's been issues of the retinal receptor layer or, or optic nerve degeneration, this is not for them. Okay. But they might profit from the melatonin method, okay. which can accomplish a similar result. I mean, is melatonin dangerous like for children or teenagers? I mean, it's a hormone. Is there any problem for them taking it? I mean, or again, this very low dose shouldn't it be an issue? Melatonin is very interesting as in its developmental course because it's high while you're a child. Hmm. And then uh, at the time of puberty, it goes low in the system. And that's the initiation of adolescence. Now, taking melatonin during that uh, vulnerable period can have side effects. I've had a patient whose periods had started, and then she took melatonin, and the period stopped. Okay. All right, that's important to know. And so we're really, uh, although there have been demonstrations in little kids with developmental brain disorders, that high doses of melatonin actually synchronize them to day and night and improve their status. I think that the early adolescent period is very vulnerable. Once you get through that, there's no side effects. So, so some in their so some in their twenties. That's you're you're past that that point. Okay, that's right. All right, this is great advice. To conclude, I just I want to I hope all my listeners had. I really appreciated what Dr. Terman had to offer today and, and these really natural therapies of light exposure and melatonin, which is so important in our sleep and our mental health. Dr. Terman, thank you so much for taking the time to, to do the podcast today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.